like we always do about this time. This is your boy JC, and In My Zone is the place to be. You could have pressed play on any podcast, but you pressed play on mine, and I appreciate that. Coming up on today's episode, rap lyrics becoming state's evidence for convictions, dancing is now a weapon in the NFL, deluxe editions in the music industry, and what the hell would Martin Luther King Jr. think of what's going on in today's climate? But first things first... Rap lyrics can now be used as evidence in the state of Maryland. So, in essence, they're going bar for bar. See, Maryland has this idea that if you give us bars that make us think that you're guilty, then we'll give you bars and strip you of not only your freedom, but your humanity as a whole. Now, according to Dina LaPolt from Variety, she wrote an article earlier in the year, and it states, In a judicial opinion filed last month, The state of Maryland's highest court ruled that rap lyrics may be admitted in court as evidence of a defendant's guilt. This blatantly racist decision is a travesty that sets a dangerous precedent. The case involves the January 2017 killing of George Forrester, who was shot by a drug dealer after he attempted to buy cocaine with a counterfeit bill. Based on a single witness's identification, Lawrence Montague was indicted for Forrester's murder. Three weeks before trial, Montague Montague had used a jailhouse telephone to record a rap verse, which was then uploaded to Instagram. At Montague's trial, the state of Maryland introduced the telephone recording of the lyrics as evidence of Montague's guilt, and Montague was convicted and sentenced to a combined 50 years for second-degree murder and use of a firearm in a crime of violence. So let me just get this out the way real quick. I don't know particularly what was on this recording But if you are at least thought of being guilty in a crime and then you choose to then go on the jailhouse phone, which by law can be used as state's evidence as is. And then you begin rapping about said crime that you are charged with. uh, You know, that's kind of that slippery slope where on one hand it's a it's art, but at the same time. You got to read the room and I have no issue if that is the case. You know what I mean? Confessing through a rap and then putting it on Instagram. Like everybody just doing it for the gram. I don't understand why you got to do it for the gram, especially when you behind bars in a situation like that. Now, again, if that's the case, so be it. But this is where it gets problematic and tricky. She continues and writes, Maryland's highest court took the case on appeal and affirmed Montague's conviction, finding that the danger of unfair prejudice posed by the admission of the lyrics does not substantially outweigh the lyrics' probative value. In making this determination, the court wildly understates the unfair prejudice posed by the use of this type of evidence. As the dissenting opinion by Judge Shirley Marie Watts notes, the decision here, quote, does little than does little more than portray a defendant to be a person with base violent tendencies who was capable of indiscriminate violent criminal acts. End quote. Now let's put it in this perspective. Let's go all the way back to the 80s, maybe even the 90s. 
Let's say in some strange situation, Ozzy Osbourne, the Prince of Darkness, ends up on circumstantial evidence being found suspicious and, and is charged with, with murder. Okay. He sits in a cell for at least eight months. Now it's time for his case to go to court. And the DA and the prosecution decide to bring in his lyrics and video footage of him biting the heads off of animals. Now, with that being said, <laughs> I don't know about you, but I, for one, would not define biting the heads off of animals as the most admirable of, uh, I don't know how to put it, the most admirable act of a, of a citizen. But if you understand what I'm saying, how the hell does that have any indication of you charging me with a crime of putting a gun to another human being and taking their life? That there's no correlation between that. Now, the article continues in stating, in this culturally problematic ruling, the court fundamentally misunderstands the history, purpose, and importance of hip-hop music. In the 1970s, Hip-hop emerged in the South Bronx as a response to the combined effects of poverty, unemployment, gang violence, and isolation from mainstream America. Early pioneers developed the genre, in part, to end gang violence. Rap was an outlet that transformed the competitiveness and territoriality of gang life into something artistic and productive. Now, it's no secret that what Maryland has done is just a clear violation of the First Amendment right to freedom of speech. But let's be clear that... We've already seen this before, and it's not anything new. I mean, when you think about gangster rap, the late 80s and the 90s out here on the West Coast, I mean, it seemed like every damn time a politician was running, you would hear N.W.A., Ice-T, Tupac. They would be used in the midst of that campaign to describe how they're going to clean up the dirtiness of that's going on around our country and corrupting the young, innocent minds of children out there. Yeah, all right. Um, let me make this very clear. I love hip hop. Hip hop culture has raised me. And far too many times in my lifetime, I've heard that rap music is nothing more than disgusting, vulgar, and just any other negative statement that you could think of. And ever since teenager, my counter to that argument has always remained the same. Just imagine how much cleaner it would be if America actually gave a fuck about the inner cities. You know, you know what I'm saying? Like, they are reporting what's going on in their lives, what's going on around them, what they see on a daily basis. And what they see on a daily basis is not the it's not the country club. You know what I'm saying? It's, it's not that. So if you have a problem with what they're speaking about, maybe it would be wise if you have that kind of empathy to try to figure out the root of what they're speaking about and get that out the way. But we all know that's not how America works. America eats its own. Case in point, you have McKinley Phipps Jr., better known as the rapper Mac. Now, last year I mentioned on the Illogical Sense podcast that I subscribed to NPR's podcast, Louder Than a Riot. And I highly, highly recommend Anybody who wants to know the parallels between mass incarceration and hip hop, definitely tune into that podcast. It's about a, I believe, an eight to ten episode series. I don't know if they're doing multiple seasons, but they did a great job with the first 
segment of what they did if they're doing more. But Mac ended up having a three-part series because the shit went way, way down the hole. Shout out to all my Wire fans. Now, Mac was basically a musical prodigy coming out the third war in New Orleans. See, by the time he was 13 years old, he had already dropped his first album. And as he was coming up, he was regarded as the New Orleans version of Nas, particularly for his flow, his cadence, the delivery, and his overall ability to paint vivid pictures with his words. Now, as he went into his 20s, he turned down a deal with Def Jam and opted to sign for Master P's No Limit Records. Now, during his tenure with the label, he dropped two solo albums, was predominantly featured on many of the releases, and was also a part of the 504 Boys. So if you don't really remember who Mac was, just think of Wobble Wobble. Mac rapped the first verse, and Mac is the one doing the hook. But unfortunately, he was never able to capitalize on that success. Because back in February of the year 2000, a month before the song came out, Mac went to perform at a hole in the wall club before going on tour. That's when a fight had broken out and 19-year-old Baron C. Victor Jr. was shot and killed. And as a result, Mac was the one who was arrested and charged with second-degree murder. Now, if you go back and actually look at the notes and the details of that case, it's probably some of the most egregious and despicable shit that you will ever see. I mean, we're talking about police pressuring witnesses into saying that it was Mac, a key witness who was threatened by the police for saying that Mac was running alongside her and not the one shooting, and even going so far as to dismissing a confession. See, Thomas Williams, who was the club security that night, confessed to the police that he was the one who shot Victor after another club goer charged at him with a beer bottle. But none of that mattered to the prosecution. See, their only concern was really to make a rapper pay for the verbal poison that he profited off of the public. And they made sure to ride that narrative until the wheels fell off when they decided to use Max lyrics against him as state's evidence. Now, if that wasn't bad enough, the prosecution then went as far as taking lyrics completely out of context to paint the picture of a killer. None more so than his song Murder, Murder, Kill, Kill. And they repeatedly used Max alias of the camouflage assassin to paint this picture that he was nothing more than a serial killer. Even though the alias that he created was only to describe the precision of his lyrical abilities. As you can see, this is all bullshit. And I'll bring another example into play. Al Pacino, one of my favorite actors of all time. Imagine if after Scarface was released, Al Pacino was charged with a double homicide. And in his case, the prosecution decided to not only show visuals from Scarface, the Godfather movies, even A Dog's Day Afternoon, but started showing them completely out of context. I mean, no backstory to show how the characters that Al Pacino played let me reiterate that. No backstory to show how the characters that Al Pacino played even got to that point of murder. It would never fly in a million years. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Like, it, it just wouldn't go. But when it comes to hip-hop, the culture, it seems to be all fair game because the rappers and criminals are all one and the same as far as the court system is concerned. So as a result of the prosecution's evidence and withholding of evidence, Mac would be convicted of manslaughter and sentenced to 30 years by the end of 2001. Now since Mac's conviction, key figures from the case have been caught up in basically a Louisiana convict for pay scandal, which includes the district attorney and a sheriff who went so far as to create a fake 
company to launder and clean up the money that was being pumped to them just to put bodies into the system. Now, if that ain't the most ass backwards form of prejudice, I really don't know what to tell you. (laughs) That shit is so fucking asinine to even comprehend if we're speaking about this in any other form other than rap music. But again, it just goes back to the simple point. How can you expect hip-hop culture to be treated fairly in a system that's still draped and has the scent of white supremacy? You can't. And ultimately, that's why Maryland's going to have a hell of a time with this new law. Y'all been watching all these Dancing with the Stars auditions in the NFL lately? (laughs) I mean, with all the physicality in the NFL... I never thought I'd see the day when the best form of get back on your opponent wasn't to just bully them on the field, but then go to social media and start dancing after the fact. (laughs) But it is the social media era, and the only reason why I'm really disappointed is because COVID really robbed us of so many possibilities. Like, check, check this for example. Can you imagine if the winning team had the ability to dance with B2K and the rest of the Little Saints on some You Got Served shit? Like, really think about that for a second. And then all the losing team could do was just look on in misery and pain as they had to walk their asses off the field. Like, that would be the most incredible thing I would see on an NFL field this year. That damn COVID, man. But I digress. The NFL did an amazing job by getting out of its own damn way and reinstating the NFL celebrations just a couple of years ago. See, it's really been a phenomenal accessory, especially when you're watching the NFL Red Zone. And I know I'm supposed to hate the Seattle Seahawks, but damn, they've had some of the best choreographed celebrations over the past two or three years, especially when they hit you with that new addition if it isn't love. But there's always going to be that one player that just takes it too damn far and starts making the situation disrespectful. So disrespectful that the only way to combat it is with nothing but pure violence on the field. And that man right now is Juju Smith-Schuster. See, Juju been out on the field doing them Fortnite dances for the Gram and TikTok. And in the midst of the Steelers starting the season 11-0, he decided he was going to bump it up a notch by Fortnite it all over them home team's midfield logos. And as you would expect, all of his opponents took it as blatant and flagrant disrespect. So when the Steelers rolled into Cincinnati for Monday Night Football in Week 15, Juju went ahead and did his dance on the Bengals logo like he was Sada Baby, despite the team having lost two consecutive games. Which then inspired the Bengals defense to take it upon themselves to make sure that Juju felt that disrespect being returned. And Von Bell was the one to deliver the vicious, vicious ass blow. I mean, he knocked his ass out so cold that my TV soundbar started peaking. So after losing for a third consecutive week, Coach Mike Tomlin had no choice but to address Juju's antics and make it very clear that he would be having a discussion to stop it in its tracks. And while Juju spent previous weeks defending his shucking and jiving, he was forced to put out a statement where he stated that he would no longer be doing the pregame dancing for the betterment of the team. Now fast forward to last week's wildcard matchup against the Browns. If you remember, following the Week 17 loss, Juju took it upon himself to belittle Cleveland in their upcoming playoff game, which provided the Browns with grade-A big board material. So in many aspects, you can blame that 28-0 first quarter start all on Juju. And while the Steelers made a few runs to close the gap, It wasn't enough to stop the Browns from winning their first playoff game in over 20 years and sending the Steelers home in shocking fashion. And how did the Browns decide to celebrate their feat? 
by doing them Fortnite and Corvette Corvette dances that Juju loves doing all up in the locker room, all up on the gram, all up on the TikTok. But that wasn't the only Dance Dance Revolution example that we had in the wild card round. Oh, no, 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 no. See, just a few hours earlier, a more confrontational addition took place between the Tennessee Titans and the Baltimore Ravens. See, back in week 11 of the regular season, the Titans ran out to Baltimore's field. Pre-game shit. Typical day. Except they didn't go directly to their sideline. They ran straight to midfield and started stomping on the Ravens logo like they were in an Atlanta club in 2004, and Lil Jon started blasting through the speakers. It was like, bruh! I know you've had some heated battles the past couple seasons, but damn, this shit is a straight declaration of war! And as expected, the Ravens took that declaration to heart, with several players and coaching staff members coming over to midfield to confront the Titans. So it comes as no surprise that there was hostility in the air during the playoff game. And when the right opportunity presented itself, it was none other than Oakland's own Marcus Peters to push start on the get back. After intercepting the ball from Ryan Tannehill late in the fourth quarter to pretty much seal the victory, Marcus Peters took it upon himself to lead his Ravens teammates back onto the field and towards the Titans midfield logo to execute the getting jiggy with it version of Order 66. As expected, many media personalities took that action to heart, even going so far to call the Ravens classless in victory. But while many of them overlooked the Stomp the Yard remix in week 11, I remembered. And I thoroughly enjoyed what I was seeing. See, I enjoy a nice execution of some get back. But when that get back is properly executed in the same manner that it was dished out in the very beginning, it looks like sweet poetry in motion. And I look forward to more literature in the NFL. I understand that COVID has made it difficult for musicians over the past year. Songs that were designed for outside have only been heard that way in select states. The ability to create a big budget music video has really only been reserved for the top artists in the game. And touring is at a complete standstill. Now this is your boy JC. You are talking to King Empathy right here. So if anybody gets it, it's gonna be me. But for the love of God, these deluxe editions of these albums just ain't the way, man. I promise you they're not the way. There's, there's got to be a better way than this. See, I went to Apple Music on Thursday night to check out Division's new project, Amusing Her Feelings. And if you've been following me at least the past five years, then you know that I've been all in on the Division bandwagon. Like, I support everything Division-related. So when I went searching for the project... I was expecting to hear 30 to 45 minutes of some brand new music filled with that good old romance and regret. But when I hit the link, I was hoodwinked, bamboozled, and led a damn stray. And for no damn good reason. I saw four brand new songs, two of which I had heard over the holiday break. And then the original track list from last year's album, Amusing Her Feelings. And that's when it hit me, man. This ain't nothing but the damn deluxe edition. Got me out here in these streaming streets looking like a damn fool. See, it's one thing when these artists are following the Chris Brown model of what would be multiple disc albums back in the day. See, it's a pretty smart way to combat the industry's new streaming format that really only pays out fractions of pennies on the dollar for each song streamed. But not everybody can pull it off the way Chris Brown does. Like how he did with his 2019 album Indigo. 32 songs, but there was a clear-cut structure involved. The first half of the project was the album with the second half playing as songs that were good, but just didn't fit the sequencing of the first half. 
And then he dropped 12 brand new songs on top of those around the holiday season, so it gave you the feel that you were getting music to enjoy year-round. And while I'm not the biggest fan of Lil Uzi's solo work, I've always given him credit for building a fan base that will consume his art whenever they can get it. And what he did with last year's Eternal Take, where he dropped the standard version one week, and then the deluxe the next week with basically a brand new album attached, it was pretty damn impressive. But outside of those two examples and maybe Lil Baby, the list is scarce for those artists who are able to pull it off. One of those artists was Eminem, who decided to release the B-side of his shockingly great album, Music To Be Murdered By, which started the 2020 musical calendar. By the time he dropped the project, I was already zoned out from the year and had begun preparing my ears for 2021. But from some of the lyrics that I've seen over the past few weeks, and some of the reviews of some trusted Eminem stands, M really did himself a complete disservice by dropping a whole other album that really, really missed the mark. And that's got to be a lesson for the vast majority of these artists. You can end up releasing an amazing body of work upon the initial release, only to rob yourself of your own legacy by going for overkill in my eyes. Now I still support the deluxe edition idea when the artist comes correct. But in the event that it's solely based on extra streams, at least let a brother know that in advance so I'm not tempted to mark your social media promo as unwanted spam when I'm hoodwinked, bamboozled, and led astray. With Monday being Martin Luther King Day, I can't help but think, what would that man say if he were alive to see the past year in this country? In particular, since the election season that started this past fall. I mean, the great prophet Aaron Magruder already gave us a fairly reasonable idea of what his thoughts towards black culture in the new millennium would have been 15 years ago. But this shit right here, I would love to see how he'd feel about all the MAGA folks who used his quotes about peaceful activism to silence the likes of Black Lives Matter over the past four to five years just to throw all that peace talk to the wayside when they stormed the Capitol building over their candidate losing. Because what a lot of people who ignorantly post Dr. King's turn-the-other-cheek teachings fail to realize is that before his assassination, the man believed that approach was just leading his flock to slaughter, and he was willing to seek out alternative methods for civil rights. But even then, it was becoming clear to him that just showing white folks their racist ways wasn't going to get them to change their ways. So if you catch somebody that you know shouldn't be quoting Dr. King, Remind them about how they not only failed to see that approach in somebody like Colin Kaepernick, but that they themselves chose to support a much more violent approach than Dr. King would have ever stood for. And on that note, I am out. Thank you again for listening to In My Zone. Don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review from wherever it is that you get your podcasts. You can follow me on all social media, at JCNoHunnids, as well as the podcast social media, at In My Zone Podcast. Catch me on the next episode of the Illogical Sense podcast dropping this Wednesday night. And I'll talk to y'all again right here next Saturday. But until then, y'all be easy and y'all be safe. One love.